if I were to ask you as uh, my fellow Christians, who are you? Uh, what is true about you? You would say a variety of things, all of which I'm sure are true, but perhaps you would leave out this one. If you are a Christian, you are dead. What a terrible thing to say to folks. But this is a deadness that is of a liberating kind. It's a liberating death that if you're a Christian, you have already experienced. And the Apostle Paul in the text before us tonight has much to say about it. I think this is a little deep and a little tricky, but potentially quite helpful in overcoming the obstacle of sin which we all face. So you might want to join me if you have a Bible in Romans chapter 6. That's where we are. Just a few of the verses at the beginning of this chapter tonight. Romans chapter 6 will begin in verse 1. And it's an interesting verse, as you will see as you get there. It says, Paul is speaking, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? What in the world would have possessed the apostle to ask that question? I think he's asking it in anticipation of the fact that some misunderstanding what he previously said would actually ask this question. Now, what is it that Paul previously said? Well, if you back up to chapter 5, verse 20 in particular, and the second half of verse 20 in particular, it says, but where sin increased, grace abounded or increased all the more. Based on that, Paul is anticipating those who distorted the notion of grace might actually be saying, I got it now, Paul. If my sin provides God with an opportunity to manifest his grace, then I ought to sin all the more and thus provide God with ample opportunity to reveal more of his grace. Can you see how... How shall I say, sick that is. But that's exactly what the thing, it's sort of like this. Uh, Paul is anticipating someone essentially saying, I like to sin, and God likes to forgive sin. I know I will keep on sinning so that God has an opportunity to keep on doing what he likes. That is to forgive my sin. So that's kind of the argument. Grace is a tough thing, folks, because some critics of the faith will say, oh, you Christians claiming to be saved by grace, I suppose, therefore, laws, rules, regulations, boundaries no longer have any application to you. You just live in the atmosphere of God's grace. And the more you sin, the more God could manifest his grace. And so they would say, therefore, sin is not to be in avoided. It is to be invited. Now, here's Paul's response to that question. It's in verse 2. May it never be. Uh, it's a very strong negation. There, there is a, probably a... a um, a, uh, no other way for Paul to say, as strongly as he did, no way. Your translation might even say, God forbid, or heaven forbid. He is saying, are you kidding me? That's not what we do, and, and, and here's why. 
how shall we, notice the word we, which means he's speaking of himself and fellow believers. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, we as Christians in this room tonight, thank God, we're still alive physically. We are mobile, we're thinking, we're, we're moving, and all the rest. And yet, in a very real sense, we also experienced a kind of death. The text says we died to sin. Therefore, Paul says, if we in fact have died to the reality of sin, how is it possible for those of us who have died to continue to live in it? So this is his argument against the naysayers behind the question in verse 1. When we accepted Christ, we were granted forgiveness of sin, and we rejoice in it. But there are deeper truths that perhaps we're not aware of. There's more than the mere forgiveness of sin, which is ours upon accepting Christ. When we came to know him, we were given a new relationship to sin, an entirely new one, and this is what it is. We died to it. Do you believe the Bible? Well, now listen. That means even if we don't have full understanding of all it says, and even if we don't feel exactly what it says, it's factual. As a fact, it says here, we have died to sin. All right, now that being the case, I'm sure you're thinking of this. I know I was when I studied this. If this is true, and I accept it as being true, it's God's word. If I have died to sin, then why do I still do it? Are you thinking about that? If we're dead to sin, why do we, from time to, to time, still commit a sin? And here's the answer. We did not die to the possibility of sin. Absolutely not. We died to the mastery of sin. There used to be a day when sin was the norm for all of us. And righteousness was the exception. Now the tables have turned. Now sin is the exception in our lives, and righteousness is the normative experience for a Christian. Sin is still very much a temptation and a foe, but we are no longer under its mastery. We used to sin. You know why? Because we had to. Now, when we sin from time to time, you know why? It's because we choose to. That's an entirely different relationship to sin. We used to be obligated to it. Sinning was an inevitable reality in our lives, but now, by virtue of our union with Christ, it no longer is an obligation. It's an exception. It ought to be the exception to the rule. So notice Paul does not ask, how can we who died to sin still sin? He doesn't ask that because he knows the answer. He's not asking, how shall we who died to it still do it? He asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So here's the deal. And these are things I think many of us don't know, and I'm learning these things myself. Before Christ, we lived in the atmosphere of sin. It had mastery over us. We lived in the if you will, the domain of sin. 
as soon as we accepted Christ, it's not something we felt or even fully understood. It is declared as a fact here in the text. Something happened as soon as we met Christ and by virtue of our union with him, we were transferred from the domain of sin to the domain of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an entire, and how did we move? We moved. When you accept Christ, your location changes. And how did it change? By dying. When somebody dies, it means a change of locale. They are relocated. And Paul uses that very nomenclature to describe our spiritual situation. We died, which means we were moved out of the domain of sin and its mastery under the lordship, the mastery, the atmosphere of Christ Jesus. An entirely different thing. When we accepted Christ, who died, we shared in his death. This is not something we work at. This is something that happened the moment we accepted Christ. And now that we have died with Christ, we no longer live in the atmosphere of sin. We've relocated to the atmosphere of Christ, our new master. You see, when our relationship to Christ changed... We had rejected him. We did not know him. When our relationship to him changed, our relationship to sin changed. And though we sometimes do it still, nonetheless, we no longer live in it. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I am a New Yorker. I don't let that out too much because it could be hazardous to your health. Uh, I was born and raised in New York. That's where I lived. I lived in New York until a time when I relocated to Houston, Texas. So I no longer live in New York. Now I live in Houston, Texas. But though I live in Houston and no longer in New York, there are times when my New York ways still come out especially if I'm cut off on the road on 45 or something like that. My New York, even, even though I'm here in the South where everyone gets along and is so gentle and nice, <laughs> still my aggressive New York ways, my pushy New York style, sometimes rears its ugly head even though I'm no longer living in the domain of New York. So my New York characteristics are still there but no longer as a pattern now they're very much an exception to the rule so too when we accepted the Lord Jesus we were crucified with him and by dying we experienced a change of location an entirely new relationship not only to Christ but to sin which had its hold on us so now I'm no longer alive to sin I'm no longer living in it I've died to it and I'm al alive to Christ but though I'm alive to Christ still sometimes sin rears its ugly head because I choose to sin. I don't have to pay attention to it anymore. It no longer is my master. My master is the Lord, but sometimes I do not submit to my master. I submit to the one sin that used to be 
my master. No, that's a whole lot different than me being obligated to sin, not even realizing I'm doing it, being enveloped in its atmosphere and liking it even. That's a whole, now listen to me. If you're not, if you haven't experienced some of what I'm talking about right now, you may not be redeemed. Now, I, I know you didn't come here for me to say something as scary as that, but I, I mean in, in the utmost sincerity and kindness. Uh, becoming a Christian is a big deal. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's new. The old has passed away. Now, no, I'm trying to make a point. It doesn't mean all of our sinful inclinations have uh, been laid to rest. I didn't say that. We have a ways to go. I understand that. But if you're not seeing little by little in your life an entirely different uh, relationship to sin areas in your life, I, I guess you should ask yourself why. Because this text, it's not me, this text tells me if I'm in Christ, I'm no longer alive to sin. In fact, it says in verse 3, do you not know that all of us Christians who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Is that speaking of water baptism? Yes and no. See where it says baptized into Christ Jesus? That's another word for saying all of us who've come to be identified. That's what the word baptism means. All of us who've come to be by faith identified with Christ Jesus, the external symbol of which is baptism. By the way, we saw, uh, is, it, is it Jeff? Is that your, Jeff, were you baptized? Uh, did I, is your name Jeff? Oh, I'm sorry. Jeff, you're so different, even your name has changed. I'm sorry. Frank and Susan, by the way, uh, thank you for letting us share in your baptism. You have no idea what a blessing uh, that kind of thing is for those of us who are so thrilled you're in the family. When, when Frank was baptized, he was not saved. Uh, Frank came to be saved, identified with Christ Jesus privately before he came tonight. Uh, through a, an opening of his heart to the Lord Jesus, through a confession of his sin, through an acceptance of Christ Jesus as his Savior. And in words that were his, he asked the Lord Jesus to forgive his sin and come into his life. And then when he entered the baptistry, he told us he had done that. And he told us that even without a word. That's the picture of baptism. Now, this text is saying all of us who have been baptized, united to Christ Jesus, and who have symbolized it externally, as Frank did, through baptism, have been baptized into his death. Now, folks, that's not a feeling. That's a fact. That's what it says right here. Therefore, verse 4, we've been buried with him. Folks, as a general rule, only those who have died are suitable candidates for burial. Did you know that? As a general rule, we don't want to bury people while they're still kicking. We wait for them, generally, I hope, we, hope, we wait for them to expire and then to indicate they really have passed. There is burial. This text is saying, you Christian, having been baptized into Christ Jesus by your faith and which you 
exhibited through baptism, you have already died with him. And you have so really died with him that you have been buried with him. And not only that, this has happened through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we heard Zach pronounce upon Frank and Susan, these two wonderful folks who were just baptized. Remember uh, Zach's word? He said, buried with him in the likeness of his death, in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. That's important. As these wonderful folks went down into the water, they are indicating, in a way I don't fully understand, I was buried with Christ Jesus. As he was crucified, somehow I was there with him so that my relationship to sin died. Uh, 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 sin didn't die uh, to me. It's very much there. I died to it. It can no longer call the shots in my life. So I am indicating that to you by going down into the water but that's not the last word it's not good enough to die how's that good news here's the good news but then just as I identify with Christ's death so too I identify with his resurrection I've been raised to walk in newness of life I've been relocated I no longer live under the mastery of a pattern of sin I now live under the mastery of the master who has really liberated me from sin? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and verse 5 makes this clear. If we've been united with him. Uh, by the way, see where it says, for if. Uh, really, uh, we could say, for since, not if, since we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, verse 6, knowing this. Now, I am becoming increasingly convinced that oftentimes our defeat, if there is that in our Christian lives, is due to what we don't know. It's all up here. Feelings come from here. Behaviors come from here. So Paul is taking pains to make sure that we know what's right so that we could avoid what's wrong. And so he says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So here's our body. Uh, here's mine, and you're looking at mine. I'm looking at yours, and uh, it's a great thing, but not so great. The body actually has become so characterized by sin, it could be referred to as the body of sin. It's the, um, it's the vehicle by which sin operates. Sin operates through our eyes and through our hands and feet and all the rest. All these movable parts have become, it's a terrible thing, but it's true of us, a body. It has become the locale, you see, of, uh, of sin. And so this text says we were crucified so that this body of sin might be, might be done away with. Why? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Uh, uh, Paul, no doubt, in using this terminology as a Jew thought of this, perhaps the other Jews he was writing to did as well. 
When ancient Israel were, was enslaved in Egypt, they were very much under the authority of Pharaoh, the master, until they cried out to God for mercy. And when God, by mercy and grace, set Israel free from bondage in Egypt, at that point in time, Israel's relationship to her former master changed enormously by faith and God's grace, Israel was transferred from the umbrella of a cruel taskmaster, Pharaoh, to the umbrella of a marvelously benevolent Lord and Savior, uh, the Messiah, you see. And so she was relocated from Egypt to the, to the promised land. And the same thing has happened to us spiritually. I think we may be minimizing what happens when Christ comes into our life. That union with him makes quite a difference. When we were saved, we too were transferred from one domain, the domain of sin, to another, the domain of Christ. And this being the case, the text says, we're no longer slaves of sin. We're slaves of Christ. I know we sin. I know we do from time to time. But there's a big difference between sin being our enemy, it still is, and sin being our master, it no longer is. It's not our master because we have died to it. Folks, a freed slave, if you think of American slavery or any other variety, a freed slave a slave who is now free can boldly stand directly in the presence of his or her former master, can look that master right in the eye and ignore every single command the master may utter because the slave is now free. That freed slave now has complete freedom to turn from the master and walk away. And this is the freedom we have. I am not obligated to continue to do the sinful things I once was obligated to do. I have a capacity now to look it in the eye, figuratively speaking, and say, no, I will not, I need not. I have a new capacity to turn from it because my master will enable me to turn from that cruel taskmaster. Folks, we're different new creatures in Christ. You see verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. Again, not from the possibility of sin, we still have that, but from the mastery of sin. That's over. Doesn't mean we're free from sin's temptation. It means we're free from sin's domination. It's different now. Now, those who identified with the death and burial and resurrection of Christ Jesus still very much have the potential to sin, but we no longer have the obligation to sin. So verse 8 says, if we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. We didn't just die. We died and live with him. Our death with Christ freed us from the inevitability of sin, and our life now with Christ gives us power to avoid sin. I'm afraid we're not knowing these things, and as a result, 
Our lifestyles are not showing the transforming power of Christ in us the way it is intended to. And I think that's why the world out there, seeing not much of a difference between the way we live out our lives and the way non-Christians do, they're becoming less attractive to the possibility of being transformed by this Christ. They have to first see his transforming power in us. And Paul is saying the key to victory over sin is not what you do, it's what you know. You have to know you're not obligated to it anymore. You have to know, I don't want to hurt you, but you have to know when you and I sin, it's because we chose to. That's why we sin. But just as we chose to, we are now empowered to choose not to. It's entirely, we're not under its mastery. So verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ died for sin once for all. He won victory over death thereafter by rising up from his own death. He is now alive to God the Father and lives in unbroken fellowship with him, and that's the experience which we have by virtue of our union with Christ Jesus. Now, here's what's been happening. For uh, five chapters and about half of chapter 6, Paul has been doing something. He's been teaching doctrine, truth. That's what he's been doing. Thus far, he's required nothing, really, of the reader or of the listener. He has simply been telling the recipient of this letter what's true. That's what he's been doing. He's been talking to people about everyone's need for Christ and no one's excuse in rejecting him. He's been talking then about what happens to the one who accepts him. That's all doctrine. By the way, that's the model of every letter in the New Testament. First, we are told what's true, and then we are told what to do, not the other way around. All right conduct and behaviors flows from right doctrinal truth. So Paul has simply been teaching doctrine up until now, until verse 11. Now things change. Look at verse 11. Even so. That means it's application time. That's Paul saying you may have enjoyed all this theological discussion. You may have found it intellectually stimulating, but the party's over. Now it's time to make application from the doctrinal truths I have just exposed you to. And this he does just with these two measly little old words. Even so, and here's what we are told to do. Consider, your Bible might say reckon, it's the same thing, consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. That's what Paul says. Make it a mental discipline to remind yourself to know that you are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider this, reckon, it's an accounting term is what it is. You know what Paul says? Think about it. Dwell on it. Put it in your mind. Accept it. Internalize it. Don't miss it. Don't ignore it. Don't be wrong about this, because if you're wrong about this, you won't be right about anything else. you got to get it right. Who are you? You're dead and alive. 
dead to sin, alive to Christ Jesus. Remember who your Lord is. Sin no longer has mastery over you. Paul says that's your application. Consider this, reflect on it, internalize it, write it down just like it's in a, on an accounting statement. Put it on your side of the ledger. Reckon this as being true. Sin and death no longer have dominion over Christ Jesus. His death, he died once and for all. And by virtue of our union with him, symbolized through baptism, death, sin, no longer has dominion over us. For we are in, those are the words, in verse 11, in Christ Jesus. We used to be in sin. No, we're no longer in that atmosphere. Now we are in Christ Jesus. We didn't work at it. We don't fully understand it. We may not feel it. You wake up, you say, I don't feel dead to sin. I don't feel alive to Christ. Okay, you're entitled to your feelings, but it's totally irrelevant. This is the fact that God spoke here through his apostle in Romans. This is a statement of truth. I'm no longer obligated to sin. I have options now. I'm dead to sin's mastery, and I'm alive to the new option a full and total obedience to my new master, Christ Jesus. By his death, once for all, his relationship to sin changed entirely. Now he lives forever in unbroken fellowship with God. And in the same way, we are to reflect on, consider, internalize, think on ourselves as being just as dead to sin and just as alive to God the Father. Now this you might find interesting. I did. Verse 11 is the first command in the book of Romans so far. There'll be like a slew of them from now on. But this is the first command issued by Paul. And isn't it interesting that it's a command not to do anything. It's a command to know. Isn't that interesting? So I'm gleaning from this. Unless we know things rightly, we will do things wrongly. If we know things wrongly, we won't do things rightly. And so Paul, in this opening few verses of chapter 6 and verse 3 said, or do you not know? In verse, uh, in, in verse 6, he said, knowing this. In verse 9, he said, knowing that Christ. You see, some people say, I don't want doctrine. Just tell me what to do. Oh, no, no, no. This, it starts with biblical truth, and then you make application from it. Knowing, knowing who we are in Christ is the key to victory over sin. If I see a defeated Christian, I figure out they have a doctrinal problem to begin with. They don't know who they are in Christ. Knowing who we are in Christ is the key to victory over sin. Therefore, the first command in the epistle to the Romans is for us to know that we are dead to sin and to know that we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. We do not count our death to the mastery of sin to be true because we feel dead to sin and alive to God. We count it to be true because God said so. And by the way, the truest thing about you is not what you feel to be true about you. It's what God has declared to be true about you. That's key, you see. Victory over sin begins with our minds. How you think, what you know. Therefore, the commandment, know this. You're dead 
to its domination, you are alive to be under the lordship of Christ Jesus. Everything in your life and mine up to knowing Christ has failed to deliver us from sin's mastery. Every single thing, every therapy, every support group, every how-to book, every everything, every New Year's resolution, every, every, every vow, every promise, every new commitment, every, everything up until Christ has failed to deliver us from sin's mastery. Jesus did it the instant we were united to him by faith. So what's the conclusion from all this? You and I have to be who we are. That's what it is. Who are you? You're one who is united to Christ in his death to sin and in his resurrection to new life. And being in union with him means that what's yours, sin, is now his. And what's his, freedom from sin's domination, is now yours. What do you think of that exchange? That's a pretty good deal. So uh, I watch debates on TV, on YouTube. My, my kids told me about YouTube. So I have YouTube. You know, it's a thing. You can watch these. And I pump in the word debate. That's what I do. I'm nuts. And so I, I watch these debates of all different kinds. And I particularly watch debates um, with regard to our belief system because I want to know what the other side thinks. I want to know how to defend the faith when I end up in conversation with those outside of the faith. So I learn a lot from the other side. So I was watching, uh, I think it was yesterday, a debate um, between an atheist and a theist. An atheist, no God. A theist, one God. And the theist happened to be a Christian. The atheist was absolutely brilliant. You perhaps have heard of him. His name was Christopher, is Christopher Hutchins. Christopher Hutchins, British, but emigrated to the United States and became an American citizen. Perhaps one of the sharpest minds uh, I ever saw expressed. Absolutely brilliant. His recall of history and data and his capacity to uh, poke holes in his opponent's argument and state his own case. It was just absolutely masterful and intensely tragic that someone so blessed with an intellectual capacity far exceeding that of most uh, cannot see the forest for the trees. And then it was, I think now, about a year ago, that Christopher Hitchens, he was a journalist. He used to write for Vanity Fair. He died of uh, cancer. And when I saw this uh, recording of a debate he was involved in while alive, I grieved like you can't believe it. He lost the argument the minute he passed out of this reality into the next. In an instant, his coherent, cogent, systematic argumentation against the existence of a personal giver of life, suddenly upon his death and passing from this life to the next, and being confronted with that God, suddenly, tragically, 
found out how wrong he was. I grieve this man now, enlightened intellectually, academically to such extent, is in forever darkness without relief. Is this the imposition of a cruel God? No, this is the choice chosen by a brilliant man who knew better. But the minute you acknowledge the presence of a Lord of life, that means you must yield to him as if he has lordship over your life. And let's face it, we don't want to. Some of us will defend against the obvious evidence of the creator in the design of the universe which he has so magnificently designed. And some of us will ignore the voice of our conscience implanted in us by Almighty God who is a moral being. And we'll defend against it so as to extinguish the evidence and Almighty God who could impose himself on us chooses not to. He only wants to woo us to himself. But after the wooing is rejected, Almighty God will back away and save to someone with an IQ off the scale it is now your God, but it can't save you. And he's perishing now for eternity. Not me, not most of you. Because there came a time somehow when the knowledge of Jesus and what he has done made so much sense, was so clearly demonstrated, was proven even bypassing our intellect, it so penetrated our hearts that we knew he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. There is no salvation in any other name under heaven. And all of us, Frank, you too, we in essence bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ. We said, oh God, take me the way I am. I accept you as Lord of my life and Savior. And the minute we did that, somehow I was there 2,000 years ago. I have been crucified with Christ, raised up from death just as he was resurrected to live in unbridled, unbroken fellowship with the Father. I'm new. I'm different. So are you. And now my battle is to act in light of my new identity and not in light of what used to be true, but no longer is. Yell at me, sin, if you will, but you no longer can dominate. You have no mastery over me. Your hold is loose. I can look you right in the eye if I chose to and walk away because I'm under the mastery of a living Savior whose death was not the final word for him either. He was vindicated in it all by being raised up from death to the glory and in the power of God his Father. And I share in that same resurrection power. And so do you. Folks, I'm not obligated to watch X-rated stuff, pornography on my computer, and get, get hooked in internet uh, poker and all this stuff. I'm not obligated to drink what I shouldn't drink snort what I shouldn't snort, look at what I shouldn't look at. I'm, if I do, I choose to. But that's not who I am. I'm free. And if the sun sets you free, what happens? Now, look at here, folks. We are not living in terms of our freedom. And we're just looking like everybody else. And a guy like Christopher Hitchens could make this very successful point, it seems to me, when he was alive. He said... 
religionists seem to manifest no more moral or ethical quality of life than non-religionists. And we have to say, you're right. You're right. Folks, we ought to start living in light of who we are so that folks who don't know who we have can be jealous and want him. We have got to start looking distinctively different from the world. We dress like everybody. We go to the same movies as everybody. We listen to the same nutso music as everybody. We engage in the same forms of entertainment as everybody. I didn't say be weird. I didn't say that at all. I just said be new in Christ. And let those who like Christopher Hitchens um, can't see the value of leaving darkness and coming into the light, let them see when you are enlightened by the light of the world, your world changes. You are not the same. You are different. You are set apart. Folks, we're different. How could it be that we would be inhabited by Almighty God who has no beginning nor any end and it not show? I think we have bought into the lie when temptation stares us in the face because it seems so good and pleasurable and attractive. I have no option but to say yes and yield to it. That's not true. Master Jesus, I say yes to you. Master sin, I say, get thee behind me. Could I ask you to pray about that just for 10 seconds, right where you are? Just close your eyes to be undistracted. Could you say, Master Jesus, I'm going to walk out of this place with a renewed commitment to live in light of your mastery over me. A welcomed mastery, by the way. Lord Jesus, I'm going to leave with my identity intact. I'm dead to domination by sin. I'm alive to mastery by you, O Holy One. Would you make that recommitment just where you are? Lord Jesus, because you're in us, with us, you heard us. Take us up on the vow we just made. Let us go out living like a set-apart, holy people for your glory and for the sake of ones still in darkness, not yet attracted to light. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. Thank you for making us alive from deadness to sin so that we can be in unbroken fellowship with you. Make us to look like the distinctively set-apart different people we are called to be. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.